Amen, amen. Let's show our appreciation to our children's ministry workers. We appreciate you. Happy Family Day weekend. It's great to have you with us. Uh, and uh, providentially or fortuitously, whatever, uh, we happen to be looking at a family-related topic. So why don't you open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27, that's on page 1 in the church Bible. This morning, we are talking about being fruitful and multiplying in a fallen world. As many of you probably know, the fertility rate in the Western world has been falling since the 1960s. As we have become richer, and as we, by and large, as a culture, have drifted away from Christianity, we have become more individualistic and less focused on marriage and family. Last Sunday, I showed you a a chart depicting the precipitous decline in fertility rates in North America over the last 20 years. This is actually specific to America. You can see there, over the last 20 years, bottoms out there at about 1.6. If that was a roller coaster at Canada's Wonderland, I don't know that how how many of us would be brave enough to go on that. Uh, That is a steep decline. And actually, things are significantly worse in Canada. Two weeks ago, the CBC ran an article stating that Canada's total fertility rate dropped to its lowest point in more than 100 years of data gathering. Now, that doesn't mean that 100 years ago the fertility rate was as low as it is now. It means we've only got 100 years of data, and the fertility rate now is the lowest that it's ever been. In fact, hitting just 1.33 children per woman So that would literally take it off the chart. The last chart I showed you bottomed out at 1.6. Here in Canada, we're at 1.33. Now, in case those numbers don't mean anything to you, social scientists typically say that replacement rate requires a fertility rate of 2.1, meaning if you want your population to stay about the same size, then you need a fertility rate of 2.1. But we're nowhere near that, which, of course, is why Canada had to bring in over a million immigrants last year, because if they hadn't, the economy would have collapsed. You can't stop having babies and expect your society to continue. That's literally not possible. But that's where we are now here in Canada. It's where we are in much of the Western world. So we're going to talk about being fruitful and multiplying in a fallen world. And for the sake of human civilization, I pray that we're all paying attention. This is something that I think we all need to hear. We're going to begin at the very beginning. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All throughout this series, we've been dealing with big picture issues. We've been asking big questions. Who are we? Why did God put us here? What are we supposed to be doing? Who are we in relation to God and who are we in relation to each other? Those are are big questions and we're going to carry on with that approach today. But I also know that parenting is not just a big issue 
It's, it's not just a big question that we need to be thinking about as human beings. If you're an actual parent, then parenting is an immediate concern. You might be interested in the fate of human civilization generally, but you're more interested in what in the world do I do with this three-year-old who has taken over my life? Right? Like, we need to also think practically about this. So even though this is kind of a big picture series, I just felt pastorally it would be helpful and maybe kind uh, to just do a week next week, kind of an excursus, a little bit of a half-step departure from our, our series, as it were, and just to talk about some wise principles for parenting in a fallen world. So we'll do that next week. And that will push our singleness message uh, to March 3rd, in case you're inviting friends for particular topics. So today we're going to build the frame, and then next week we'll kind of paint inside the frame. Today we're going to talk about God's good design, this fallen world, and our glorious hope. So let's begin with God's good design. As we just read, in the beginning, God made them male and female. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the first commandment that is given to a human being, given to human beings in general, is to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with image bearers who love God and who lead creation. That was and is our mandate as a species. This is who we are. This is what we are supposed to be doing. The ethicists, uh, well, that's hard to say, isn't it? The ethicist Oliver O'Donovan says that human beings are clearly ordered at the biological level towards heterosexual union as the human mode of procreation. It is not possible to negotiate this fact about our common humanity. It can only be either welcomed or resented. Isn't that interesting? O'Donovan is saying, you, you can't argue with biology. And by the way, we're in the midst of a social experiment right now as a society since 2016, uh, which some refer to as the Great Awakening, uh, where we've been trying to rebel against every norm for human life and sexuality. We are actually trying right now to rebel as a society against biology, but you can't do that, O'Donovan says. You were made to do this. Your biology has been organized around this function. And so by and large, if you work in line with this reality, with this design, you're gonna be happy, you're gonna be fulfilled. But if you ignore or resist or attempt to reject this design, you're gonna be frustrated. There's a ton of evidence to support that. I mentioned last week that in study after study, the happiest people in the world we're discovering are married people. The uh, general social survey that I referred to last week found that the happiest people in the world are married women with children. The second happiest people in the world are married men with children. The reason we're doing all these studies, trying to find out what makes people happy, is because right now in our society... At the same time as we're engaged in this experiment to see if we can defy reality and biology, we are seeing massive spikes in mental health issues, in anxiety and depression. I wonder if those things are connected. I wonder if it's actually not good for us to kick against the goads. 
I, I wonder if obedience is actually life and health to the human soul. Working in line with our design is good for us. We were made for this. I mentioned last week that a man's body has been optimized for production and protection, and a woman's body has been optimized for reproduction and nurture. Those are facts. According to studies that you can find with any Google search, in upper body strength, males have, an average, have on average 75% more muscle mass and 90% more strength than females. They have higher bone density and more fast twitch muscles, which enables them to react more quickly. That makes men good at going out into the world to gather up supplies. And there are facts related to a mom's body as well that make her really good at raising and nurturing little ones inside the nest. Moms have magic glands and hormone levels that men simply do not have. (laughs) That actually is funnier than I anticipated. (laughs) But those are facts. Those are facts we used to rejoice in because we used to recognize in those facts God's concern for children. Two Princeton sociologists were honest enough to go on record saying something that I'm not sure how many sociologists are honest to go on record uh, to say. They said this, if we were asked to design a system for making sure that children's basic needs were met, we would presumably come up with something quite similar to the two-parent ideal. Isn't it wonderful that such a system actually already exists? It's called biblical marriage. This, This is a good design. When a man and a woman come together, bringing their various strengths and capacities for the purpose of having and raising little babies, individuals and societies flourish. Thanks be to God. So we need to embrace this good design, but we need to do that with the understanding that we live in a fallen world. In a fallen world, things don't always go the way they're supposed to go. And nowhere is that reality more obvious and more painful than in the area of childbearing. In fact, that was the first thing that God said to the man and the woman when he was spelling out the consequences of the fall. He said to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So after the fall, it's going to be harder and more painful to bring forth children, to raise up children in this world. And of course, we see that reality played out in the first story about children in the Bible. The first children born to the man and the woman, of course, are Cain and Abel. You learned that story probably in Sunday school. If you can't remember, just turn probably one page over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4, and you'll see the story of Cain and Abel is characterized by difficulty, division, and death. Eve's two sons took two very different roads in life. One loved to worship God, And the other son resented it. Moms and dads, you need to know that. 
two children raised in the same home by the same parents in the same environment. And one became a worshiper and one became a murderer. That's reality in a fallen world. You don't get to control outcomes as parents in a fallen world. In a fallen world, every human being has to decide whether to be reconciled to God or whether to persist in their rebellion. Your kids will have to make that choice for themselves. You can't make it for them as much as you might like to. And that fact will bring pain into your heart, moms and dads. And, and don't quote Proverbs 22.6 at me. The only people who quote Proverbs 22.6 as if it guarantees that if you raise your child in a certain way, they will certainly and unfailingly follow the Lord are people whose kids are four years old. Can we put that out there? That's not how Proverbs work. Proverbs are not promises. They are principles, and principles are resisted in a fallen world. You should know that even if you only read Proverbs. Because in Proverbs, what Proverbs are is they set out how things generally go. You need to know that. You could put in brackets after every proverb, generally speaking. Raise up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Generally speaking. That, that, that's that's it's a wise principle. It is certainly true that if we commend Jesus Christ to our children, if we, if we model and teach the ways of the Lord, we dramatically increase the likelihood that they will find those ways, love those ways, and walk in those ways. But we cannot determine the outcome. And even Proverbs itself tells us that. Proverbs all the time gives you, you know, kind of the, the way things generally go and the way things often do go. The way things are supposed to go and the way things they sometimes do go. So, for example, how many Proverbs are there that says, you know, if you work hard, you're going to have lots to eat? We, I bet you we could make probably a list of 40 different Proverbs that are making that point. And yet, Proverbs also says, the field of the poor would yield a great harvest, but in injustice it is swept away. Meaning... Sometimes there's a poor man who works his field really hard and he doesn't have a lot to eat because of some injustice. Maybe, maybe the government's taxing him too high. Maybe a bandit came and raided his barns. That stuff happens in a fallen world. Sometimes things don't work out the way they're supposed to work out. Same thing with parenting. Raise up a child in the way that they should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. yes. And yet Proverbs 10.1 says what? A wise son makes his father glad and a foolish son makes his mama sad, right? Meaning, meaning what? At the end of the day, your kids have to decide whether they're going to wisely walk in the ways that they've been set upon by mom and dad and community or whether like fools they're going to go astray and figure things out on their own. You can't control outcomes, and you need to know that. That's reality. And that reality will break your heart as moms and dads. The Old Testament prophets lamented this fact in their writings. If you are lamenting this fact right now, you're in good company. 
Micah 7, 6-7 says, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That is faith in a fallen world. Recognizing reality. Still following the Lord. Still clinging in hope. The truth is that some of your kids are going to be at war with God. And some of your kids are going to be at war with you. That's reality in a fallen world. Can I just speak to the boomer parents and the Gen X parents in the room for a moment? I'm a Gen X parents parent. You know, people my age, their, their kids are in their 20s and 30s. And then if you've got... Uh, if you're a boomer, your kids are approaching 40 now. And I will just tell you, there are so many boomer and Gen X parents right now who are grieving the fact, mourning the fact, and processing the fact that some of their kids are walking with Jesus and some of their kids are not. And you probably just need to hear today that you are not ultimately responsible for the rebellion or faith of your child. You don't have that much power. You can't make faith and you can't make rebellion. Nobody's going to get to stand before God on judgment day and say, well, you know what, God? My daddy spent too much time at work when I was a kid. My mommy didn't hug me enough. And my parents got divorced. No. You are ultimately responsible. Those things are factors, not fate. Now, parents, we're, we're all responsible for the decisions we make, for the actions we take, for the priorities that we set 100%, and we'll have to give an account for that. But you need to understand that you were never in a position to determine the outcome of your child's life. In a fallen world, difficulty and division are par for the course. Some of your kids are going to walk in the ways that lead to life. And some of your kids are going to take the road that leads to death and destruction. You can teach them. You can love them. You can correct them. You can restrain them. You can set a good example for them. You can pray for them and encourage them. But you can't control them. And you need to know that. And, and young couples, if I could speak to you for a second, you need to know that... It's hard just bringing children into the world now. I mean, it always has been. This goes back all the way to Genesis 3, but it does seem like it's getting harder and harder to bring little ones into the world, let alone raising them up to maturity. It, I, it feels like, I don't know if, if, if this is true, but it, it feels like almost every month I hear about somebody in our congregation who is either struggling with infertility or who has had a miscarriage. Now, this has been going on since Genesis 3, but it does seem to be getting worse. And so you just need to know, this is not a you problem, this is an us problem. Do, do you remember when Jesus and the disciples were walking along and they, um, the disciples saw this fellow on the side of the road who had been uh, born blind. 
And so they, they started wondering, as, as we do. And they started asking each other, whose sin do you think caused this fellow to be born blind? Was it the sin of his parents or his sin? And do you remember Jesus broke in and he, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Are you hearing that? That's not how disease works in a fallen world. So young couples out there, don't, don't be asking the question, are we struggling to have a baby because of my sin or because of my husband's sin? It's neither. This is an us thing, not a you thing. In a fallen world, all our bodies are groaning. We all have fruits of the fall ripening within us. Some of us have MS. Some of us have cancer. Some of us have diabetes. And some of us have infertility. Again, that's, that's not a you thing. That's an us thing. And you need to know that. In Genesis 3, God said that parenting would be difficult now. And it is. It is hard to bring little ones into the world. And it is hard to raise them up to love and follow Jesus. And it'll break your heart at some point in the process, I promise you. And in the providence of God, some of us experience a larger portion of that pain than others. Being fruitful and multiplying in a fallen world is harder than ever. But the design is good, the joy is real, and the pain is worth it. This is still who we are. This is still what we do. So what changes as we enter into the New Testament era? We expect a change, don't we? That's the rhythm of this series. We've been picking up these threads of our design. We've been looking at how these things have been affected by the fall. And then we've been rejoicing in how these things are impacted by the redemption, by the grace that is ours through God in Christ. So we're expecting a change, and particularly on this issue. We've been waiting for a change here since Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, in the hearing of the man and the woman, I will put enmity, that means constant conflict, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right after the fall, God promised that salvation would come into the world through the birth of a human baby. Isn't that amazing? And so, of course, as we flip over to the New Testament, we're not surprised that the New Testament opens with the story of a human baby. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the child that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. We've been waiting for a child who would be born of a woman, who would be a human baby, a real human baby, who would enter our story and make everything right, who would heal our hearts, who would forgive our sins, who would fill us with the Holy Spirit, who would lift us up out of the depths to which we have fallen, 
who would teach us how to live again and who would eventually take us home to our Heavenly Father. He will do it. Jesus will fix what is wrong with us. Jesus will make every sad thing untrue, even the sad things that strike closest to home. But not right away. In Matthew 10, Jesus says something really unexpected. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Do you see what passage he is citing there? How many times have you read that and not looked at the little footnote? In your Bible, you always have little, at the end of an Old Testament citation, there's a tiny little footnote, and if you follow it down, what passage is Jesus citing here? He is citing Micah 7. Micah 7, 6-7, the passage we just read about how hard it is to do family in a fallen world. And here is Jesus saying, do not think that I have come to fix your families. Do not think that I have come to glue your families back together. He says, if anything, i got to be honest with you, my coming might make it worse. I'm, I'm bringing the sword. I am working the final separation of human beings. That's going to divide families right down the middle. So what in the world does he mean by that? He's not saying that he's opposed to God's design. In fact, on the contrary, Jesus cites the creation story. Jesus cites the Genesis narrative as normative for human beings. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus validates that as the norm. He cites that as authority. I'm for that, he says. But I'm playing the long game. I'm making a new family. I'm I'm making a family of sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, nieces and nephews, aunties and uncles that will constitute the forever family of God. In that family, there will be perfect unity. In that family, there will be perfect harmony. In that family, there will be love, peace, and joy forevermore. And you can only get into that family if you confess your sins, take up your cross, and follow me. And Jesus says, and if your love for your biological family keeps you from doing that, you need to understand that you'll be forever outside. That's how Jesus ends the citation from Matthew 10. After saying, I didn't come to glue your family back together, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus actually says, sometimes you've got to let go of your family here in order to find your forever family there. That's the new thing we find here in the New Testament. We discover that the families we are in now are actually not our forever family. It's our right now family. It's the family God puts you in, but it is not your forever family. That's coming. 
Matthew 12, 49 and 50 says, And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is my family. This is my forever family right here, Jesus says, pointing at his disciples. And you want to make it your life goal to be a part of that. Jesus locates our glorious hope a little further out into the future. The healed family, he says, will be a feature of the world that is coming. But right now, we live in the overlap of the ages. So what are the implications of that? That's where I want to end today. The first implication, I hope, is pretty obvious. It's still a good thing to have and raise little babies. It's a very good thing. Jesus loves little babies. In fact, he gets annoyed sometimes at the disciples when they're trying to keep him focused on the important business and keep the little babies away. And Jesus says, no, the little babies are the important business. Bring them to me. He lays his hands on them. He prays for them. He blesses them. And, of course, the New Testament is filled with instructions on how to build a good marriage because a good marriage is the best place to raise up little babies. And the New Testament contains instructions to parents. So, for example, fathers are told in Ephesians 6.4 to raise up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So even though the world has fallen, and even though it's really hard, and even though our families can be divided, this is still who we are. We are still male and female. We are still born with the desire the capacity, the impulse to be fruitful and multiply. And so as a church, we need to help young people with this because it's never been harder. We need to make it easier for young people to get married. You saw in the announcement slides, I had the privilege yesterday of facilitating the marriage of two young people in our church. That's a win. That's a win. Somebody said to me just this morning, boy, I tell you, if... if Two Christian kids pushing back, you know, pushing, think of all they've got to push back against, right? But if two Christian kids stand together and take vows before God to get married, that's a, that's a win. That is something to celebrate as a church. That's a sign of God's mercy and kindness. It's a good thing. We need to make it easier you know, one of the things, I don't have a million dollars, but I tell you, one of, you know how you go, for, you know, when you're falling asleep, you sometimes think, what would I do if I had $10 million, right? Um, you know, one of the things I would do, I would build some kind of facility connected to our church so that the kids who grow up in this church could get married here for free. We got to make it easier. Because housing is so ridiculous right now. How do kids get a house? I don't even know. And, and, a lot of them are looking at it saying, well, I'd like to get married, but it's, it's 30, 40 grand to get married, and then I gotta come up with a 100 grand deposit on a house. How are you doing that? I don't know the answer, right? It's easy for me, I'm the pastor. I'm not actually in charge of the money, so I can put out all these crazy ideas. We should buy every kid a house. Why aren't we doing that? And then it's, you know, the board guys are like, shut up. <laughs> Write your elder. Buy every kid a house. And we got to do something. We got to do something. We got to come alongside of our kids, our young people, in the pains and 
trials of childbearing. Now, not to let the cat out of the bag, but this is part of what we're going to be talking about in two weeks when we have our talk on singleness. Because in every family, for most of human history, there were single aunties and single uncles and widowed grandmas and grandpas who played a pivotal role in the raising and nurturing of children. For most of human history, being single didn't mean, you know, traveling and having commitment-free sex. Being single meant coming alongside of exhausted couples in the having and raising of kids. We need to recapture that. That needs to become the new normal in the church. Listen, providence is a dangerous doctrine. Providence is the idea that nothing actually happens except that God ordains it, right? Providence is about how even the stupid things that we do, for which we are responsible, are ultimately woven in the miracle of God into good outcomes that favor the glory of Christ and the good of God's people, right? That's the doctrine of providence. Which means at the end of the day, when things happen, you're supposed to ask the question, why? What purpose might God have for this? So can I just put something out there that must be true, but that is so painful and potentially hurtful that it's never said? But it must be true. Mustn't there be people in this church who've never been blessed with marriage and who've never been blessed with children because God intends for you to be the world's greatest auntie or awesome Uncle Frank? You know, the reality is there's no such thing as a childless person in the family of God if you understand what the family of God is. There is a role for you to play in our collective mission as human beings. And so I, I want to be very clear. Absolutely, if you're wanting to get married and wanting to have children, pray for that, and we'll pray alongside of you for that. But if you have been praying for that, and God hasn't given it to you, at some point, ask the question, does God intend for us as a couple to adopt you, you know, for example, my wife and I have adopted, and it is, I will tell you, it's the most emotionally freighty thing you'll ever do in your life, but also potentially the best thing. There are kids out there in need of a forever home, and some of us are just so concerned with having a designer baby and having this perfect Instagram life that we are overlooking the opportunity to do something amazing. So at least think about that. And, and at least think about whether or not maybe in the providence of God, you are the answer to someone else's parenting crisis. Would, would you think about that? And that leads us to our second implication. It's really important for the church to look and feel like a family. Because according to Jesus, we are a family. We are the family that people are being born again into. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children with lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Did you catch that? 
Jesus says to people, this is part of the, part of the pitch, He's saying, understand, to come to me, you may have to leave everything behind. But I want you to know that if you come to me, if you take up your cross and follow me, then you will receive now in this life houses, mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters, children with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus is saying, if you come and follow me, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat that with persecution. How many scribes and editors do you think were tempted to take out that? It's going to be hard, but the good news is I'm going to give you a family and they'll walk with you through it. We are part of the pitch. The the church has to be a family to make it easier for other people to give up their families in order to come here. Jesus says to people, you come and you get eternal life and you get us. You get these people. Do you understand that? We are part of the package. We are the forever family of God. So when people are born again, they are born into God and they are born into us. So moms and dads, let me, let me press in for a second on some young moms and dads. This means, moms and dads, that not only do you want your kids to love Jesus, you want your kids to love us. And some of you need to hear that because young parents today tend to be a little bit possessive of their kids. They want to be everything to their kids. And you need to know that you can't be everything to your kids. And you're not supposed to be everything to your kids. And so you need to let us in. You need to let your kids have regular, meaningful contact with other adults who love Jesus and who aren't mom and dad. That's a good thing. You want that positive reinforcement. So you need to let us in. But to flip that around, some of us in the wider tribe need to step up and join the process. You heard Ryan mention, Pastor Ryan mentioned a few minutes ago that we right now, just coincidentally, meaning we didn't throw this announcement in because it's family day and we're talking about kids, but we are actually wildly short-staffed right now for prospectors. Uh, Prospectors is our midweek program. We bring the kids in, and it's, mom, it's auntie and uncle time. We're teaching them crafts. We're teaching them about Jesus. And for whatever reason, you know, cold and flu season, I get it. We, just, we did not have a lot of volunteers uh, sign up this semester, but we did sell out with kids. That's a problem, so we got to fix it, right? We, we need some aunties and uncles. One of the things that we got to get out of the mindset of thinking it, we, we, we got a, a troubling mindset in the church, and I don't just mean at Cornerstone. This is everywhere. The troubling mindset is children's ministry is where you should volunteer if you have kids. you got to go on rotation because, you know, if you're putting kids in the system, you got And I want to say, actually, no. Like, I would argue, I mean, first of all, if you're, if you're doing that, thank you. That's great. But no, I would argue it's for us to do this, for those of us who don't have kids in the program, for those of us to step up and be aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, because that's what the church is. For a lot of human history, do you know who was sitting at the kitchen table doing homework with little Susie? It wasn't mom, for crying out loud ago. 60 years ago, mom didn't have a, a washer and dryer. She spent eight hours a day doing laundry. 
So a hundred years ago, do you know who was, who was doing homework at the table with Susie? It was grandma. Not to be mean, because grandpa died at 58 after working in the coal mines, and grandma lived to 75, and she spent the rest of those years looking after the next generation of kids. Or it was single Aunt Sue or crazy Uncle Frank. I mean, you were praying for sweet Aunt Sue, but if you got Uncle Frank, then he helped you out with your homework, and who knows how that turned out. (laughs) But it has always taken a wider tribe to raise a child. Some of us need to step up and fill that role. That leads us to our final implication. It's absolutely critical for us to evangelize and disciple our children. I'm going to get there, but actually I want to say something else that I just kind of the spirit laid on me a little bit. Can I talk directly to the kids for a moment? Forget that heading. Just put that away for a second. We're going to go back to the, next, the last one of the church feeling like a family. I don't know how many you know, teenagers and young, young people there are in the church. I would imagine right now listening, because I know some of them went downstairs, but I'm going to say this to those of you who are here. You need to, to work at thinking of this place as your family. Young people today are more individualistic, and they're also more socially awkward. Uh, I think I quoted at one point some statistics from Jean Twenge, where she indicated that young people today, so let's take, say, kids from 8 to 18, young people today spend less time with adults than any previous generation in North American history. Meaning they spend time with their friends. It's actually one of the factors they identify in the increase in teenage suicide rates. Part of the problem right now is that children are peer-bonded as opposed to parent-bonded. When a bad thing happens in the life of a 14-year-old, they take it to Instagram instead of taking it to mom and dad. That's a really unhelpful development. And so actually today's children are less inclined than ever before to think in categories of extended family. For one thing, they have less extended family. Tons of articles have been written saying, we're raising the first generation of kids without cousins. So they actually don't think in terms of extended family. And so when they come to church and they live Instagram lives and they don't have a lot of extended family, this metaphor doesn't make sense to them. Think of the church as my aunties and uncles. What are they? Who are these people? I don't even talk to my parents, let alone my aunties and uncles. Right? So young people in the room, listen, you need these people. These people are your superpower. And there's wisdom in understanding that. In Proverbs, it says, better is a friend nearby than a brother far away. What's the point of that proverb? What it's saying is that it's actually your close local community that will help you in a time of crisis, not your biological family who've spread all over the globe. When you get sick, it's these people who will bring you food. When you get injured in a car accident, it is these people who will drive you to your appointments. When you have a crisis, it is these people who will show up so that the world doesn't crash. These people are your superpower. And if you have them, you will live a stable, secure life relative to your peers. These people are God's gift to you. That leads me to our final implication. It's absolutely critical for us to evangelize and disciple our children. This is why we don't baptize babies in the church. If you've come here from the Catholic, Anglican, or Lutheran tradition and you wonder, why were the people getting baptized so big and heavy? Um, 
right? You could do this in a bird bath. It's so much more efficient. Uh, we baptize big people, right? We don't, we don't baptize babies for the simple reason that we believe that you can never assume the salvation of your kids. Our children need to be born again. Can you say amen to that? There's an old saying I used to hear. I don't know if it's still a saying. I never know. But I remember as a kid hearing God has no grandchildren. Did you hear that? Maybe that's like a local King Bible Church saying. I don't know. But what it means is that nobody is going to get into heaven because of the faith of their parents. On Judgment Day, you can't say, oh, Betty Carter ran... um, the women's ministry here at the church. Jim, Jim Carter paints the hallway. No, that doesn't, what? Let me talk to you about your faith. Who are you? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? God has no grandkids in that sense. Our kids are not gonna enter into the kingdom of heaven because they're our kids. They need to be born again. Jesus said in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's the goal for us as parents. We want our children to be born again. We're ultimately not in the behavior management business. We are in the make disciples of Jesus Christ business. Now, what's that old saying? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Okay, so that one existed outside of my home church. I'm glad I know that. (laughs) You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And so some of us hear that and we think, well, then there's nothing we can do, right? Right? The kids are going to do what the kids are going to do. No. There is something that you can do. You can lead your horse to water. You can lead your child to the feet of Jesus Christ. You can do that by teaching them. And you can do that by praying for them. And we can come alongside of you in that. At the end of the day, parenting is just disciple-making at the cellular level. It takes a mom and a dad, absolutely, and it also takes a church. We were made for this, and we were made for each other. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this place, for the gift of this tribe, for the gift of these aunties and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, brothers and sisters, nieces and nephew. Lord, these are part of your grace and your kindness to us. I pray, Lord, that we would find our place here, that we would find our our role, our space, our ministry, our passion, and that we would give ourselves to the to the shared enterprise of making disciples, raising up little ones who, <clears throat> who love Jesus and follow him gladly all their days. Oh, God, give us grace and help towards that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.